Welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the inner workings of the creative process. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. Urban fantasy author Sarah Fine, who writes psychological thrillers as SF Kosa, is a clinical psychologist as well as a novelist. As a result, she has a lot to say about the amateur psychology and observational skills writers tend to possess, as well as what she will and won't do in portraying aspects of mental health in her books. In addition, we also talk about the psychology of the creative process from artificial pressure to write every day, to how the unconscious can do a lot of heavy lifting for us as we try to navigate a difficult question or creative block in our process and even just why it is that characters often seem to escape the control of their authors. Sarah's latest book, The Night We Burned, comes out on August 10th. I think you'll enjoy my conversation with Sarah Fine. Sarah, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. You don't necessarily think of someone who has a PhD in one thing sitting down one day and saying, I'm going to write a book. At least Um, not, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not something that's, you know, not a, a psychology textbook, probably. Right, right. Yeah. And yet here you are and you've written fantasy and you write psychological thrillers. Right. And I know that, you know, you never expected to have a creative journey and are still kind of surprised that you've been on one. So I'm curious to right. know how that happened for you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah we, I mean, we could talk a lot about um, what I believe to be the value in doing other things besides writing um, and how that can enrich your writing. But for me, it was very much, um, I don't know, the, I started writing very abruptly. Um, I was working as a psychologist and I had young children at home and a very busy life, um, but I was, I've always been an avid reader. Uh, and I was reading at the time, a lot of romance novels and I remember thinking, and I'm going to couch this by saying this was a very, um, silly thought, but I remember thinking I could write this. This doesn't seem so hard. Um, you know, I bet I could do this. No problem. So I had this, suddenly I had this urge to like give this thing a try. Um, this, you know, I was, I really enjoyed reading these books and I was like, well, maybe I could just write a book. Um, and I actually started, uh, writing the weekend of my 35th birthday. Uh, and until that point I had, and still have not, um, I had not ever taken a creative writing class. I had never really written apart from assignments and basic literature courses. I had not, uh, written creatively, uh, on my own. And yet I thought of this idea and it took hold. And a month later I had written a 99,000 word novel. Ooh. That's um, fast. It is fast. <laughs> and at times I am fast. At times I am very not fast. But uh, <laughs> in this particular uh, instance, I was, I just, I had this book and I was like, you know, when you're done, it's like, it's like giving birth. You're like, <laughs> I did that. Wow. This is this like really hard, um, you know, sort of painful, intense thing that I did. But look what I have. I have this book. And I thought like, <laughs> you know, naively, I was like, who has ever done this before? No one, no one's ever done this before. You know, you think I am so special. I did this thing, like not, I had no clue, no context. And, you know, I, I sent it to my parents. I was like, parents, I have written a book. And I was, I was like, I think I am special. And they're like, yes, you are very special. (laughs) You know, like I had these very naive ideas. And so they were like, maybe you should look into getting this published. And I was like, yes, maybe I should. And so I started researching and I found out, okay, well, you have to have a literary agent and uh, you have to write a query letter. Uh, So I did all these things, you know, and I I sent out uh, some query letters and immediately, of course, started to get rejections, (laughs) like form rejections. Um, But what was great is that I also became aware of the writing community that is online. And what it did was sort of connect me with a whole world of people trying to do the exact same thing I was doing, which was wonderful because 
um, I tend to be an information seeker. And I do really like, despite my sort of naive um, fantasies about, you know, being an instant uh, best-selling author, I do like to educate myself and have an accurate perspective so I can kind of anchor myself in reality. And that awareness of the online community that, you know, people, there were agent forums and writers forums, and I found myself a beta reader and started getting feedback on my writing. And uh, it was, so it was all part of the process. So that first naive push uh, that got me, you know, I, I wrote that first book and I, I queried it for a little while, but after about 30 rejections really decided um, this book is not a I don't think it's good enough. I don't think this book is good enough. And I actually am not sure, and this tends, there's been a pattern. I'm like, I'm not sure I wanna spend too much more time on something that I don't think is gonna get me kind of where I wanna go. I just don't think it's quite, uh, you know, up to snuff. So I actually, despite loving those characters and still thinking about them occasionally to this day, I, I wrote another book. And uh, that one is actually the one that became my debut novel. Uh, but again, after, you know, over a hundred rejections of varying types, um, but instantly, you know, but it was, I, you know, but I, it set me, that first book and the way I got started definitely set me on a creative journey. And it's both emotional because writing is emotional, you know, writing fiction and putting yourself out there, you know, you're infused into all your words. Uh, but it also for me is very, very intellectual process of like trying to figure out a puzzle or crack mm -hmm. a code. Um, so both of those aspects, um, have always been present in my writing journey. And even to this day, I'm still trying to find a balance between those two aspects of why I write. Yeah. And it sounds like, you know, you were at a point with that first book where a lot of people would have said, yeah, this writing gig is not for me. I'm going to go back to my day job and I'm just going to do that and be done. And yet clearly something had taken hold by then that you weren't willing to do that. Yeah. Well, it was such that it was an ecstatic feeling. It was euphoric. And um, just like, I would wake up in the middle of the night churning on these characters or a scene, or I was obsessed. And part of it was where I was emotionally in my life at that point. I'm actually at a very different point right now or for the last several years in my life. And so writing has come to mean something different to me. But at the time, I initially, I was just very much uh, concerned that I would never be able to do it again. Like right after mm -hmm. I had written that book, it was a little bit like, um, I think it's flowers for Algernon where, you know, the guy kind of gets this treatment and uh, kind of awakens and becomes this, you know, goes from being intellectually uh, disabled to being, you know, unfettered intellectually and understanding everything. But then at the end, it sort of everything fades and he returns to this state of, you know, not being aware. And I was worried that my writing journey would be like that. I had had this like euphoric awakening in, in like journey through this creative uh, world. But I was afraid that I would like, that was it. That was all I had, you know, I'd sort of spent uh, my creative capital and that was all. What I found out is it's just not, that's not how it works. <laughs> um, and uh, so but it took a few books for me to realize like, oh, I can just keep doing this. It's, you know, some books will be better than others, but I can keep doing this, you know. It's just a matter of keeping that creative fire going and the interest going. Uh, that's the issue. Definitely. And, and it's especially challenging. I mean, since you wrote the first book and immediately started querying and getting rejections, mm -hmm. that is is remarkable to me you know i one of my one of the faculty in my mfa program i can't remember what her magic number was but i think it was something like 78 she said you can't give up getting your book published until you hit 78 rejections and that was her number because that was how many it had taken her the 79th <laughs> one you yeah know. oh so i got she, more yeah she just was not having it from anybody who gave up before at least 78 yeah and well, so, yeah. yeah, how did, how did that, how did that hit you that, you know, it didn't, it didn't seem to make you give up for sure. Did it 
fuel you somehow? Well, yeah, I, I think it was a little bit of a challenge. Like at first I was, you know, I was sort of surprised. I was like, whoa, they're, they're not even interested in reading my book. Like, and so I was like, well, why is that? Well, maybe my query isn't good. Like I instantly started problem solving and, um, but as I started educating myself more about the structure of books, about genre and like what it takes to actually get a book on a shelf in a bookstore, I began to realize, and again, I, I do sort of, I work pretty hard to keep myself anchored in what I understand to be reality. And um, I, I really wanted to know, like, is this actually good enough? Because if it's not, then um, I'm not really interested in pretending it is or trying to, you know, like keep doing something that I think is futile. I think one of the things that helped me is, you know, if you go through a PhD program or any sort of intensive training program of whatever type, you're going to get a lot of feedback and criti criticism um, in clinical psychology. You not only uh, you're not only doing a dissertation, doing research, you know, having to defend your thesis and your dissertation, you're not only having to do all that, you're doing clinical work and you're being watched by people who um, are training you. And it's their job to critique you and to tell you when you're not doing something in a good way or when you could be doing something better. You know, I've done uh, clinical work where I was in a room with a, you know, a one-way or two-way mirror and a phone on the wall. So I was working with a family and the phone would ring and it would be my supervisor saying, um, I don't think you should be talking to them in this way. Maybe like try this or, you know, you've really lost control of this session. Maybe try this. <laughs> so, so, you know, I'm, I think being used to and able to incorporate critique without letting it, without taking it too personally, being like, you know, well, I suck. It's not that you suck, you're learning, right? You're, it's ridiculous to think that anything worth doing, you can instantly do at the level of an expert. Um, and so I sort of had the attitude like, okay, well, this is a new skill set. Um, I got to figure out how to do this and figure out how to do it much better. And so I started, you know, looking at my writing with, an eye to spotting crutches and laziness and cliche and, you know, all that. So I started looking at the actual writing and then looking at the plot structure and pacing and getting an agent really helped with that. But I would say I got well over 78 rejections before <laughs> I got an agent. I would say it was closer to, if you count both books that I queried, uh, it was closer to like 110. Uh, before I actually got an agent. But there were signs you could see that I was clawing my way towards something better because with the second book, I started to get requests almost immediately. So mm. I knew I was, and I, but through those requests, I also started getting feedback from agents. Like it, I would be, you know, maybe try doing this or, you know, I liked this part, but this didn't work for me. Or, you know, you start getting a little bit more um, substantive feedback and then you know you're getting somewhere because people will actually take the time to tell you, oh, I like your writing. This story isn't for me, but maybe next time. You know, like, so you start hearing things that are slightly more encouraging, even when they're just flat out rejections, you're getting more information. That's yeah. Helpful. Yeah, I think that definitely, it, you know, makes a difference because then it's like, okay, maybe I'm not wasting my time. Maybe this is a real thing. Maybe, you know, if I take these suggestions to heart and try again, yeah. you know, somebody else will. And, and obviously somebody else eventually did. So, yeah. 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 But it was definitely a process at first. <laughs> well, and yeah. it still is. It still is. I still get rejections. Like, yeah, you know, it's just part of the game, right? Sure. Yeah. It's, it's also interesting to me, especially because you have the psychology background, because I know I've heard of, is it just called rejection therapy where it's like you go out and you seek rejection so that it doesn't bother you as much anymore? Oh, that would be more like a therapy to like sort of habituate you to, um, you know, something that's really aversive and get you to understand that it, and not have to catastrophize it. You know, like I didn't die when this happened. It's, right. you know, if, if it's like exposure therapy. Um, and I think some people call it aversion therapy, but yeah, I would think of it as an, a kind of exposure. You're like, oh, if this is what you're really scared of, expose yourself to it. You didn't die. Um, you're going to be okay. It's, it's a, you know, if you want to get over panic um, and, you know, trauma is a, 
you know, more specific thing, uh, but you definitely have to kind of expose yourself in a controlled way to the thing that um, you're most avoiding so that you can sort of, because it's only through interacting with that thing and processing it that you can master it in a way that allows you to function better. So definitely, I, you know, I'm used to rejection. It never feels good, um, but it's not going to kill me <laughs> or make me stop writing. And that's the key right there. It's not yeah. going to make you stop writing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Because I think so many people get stuck right there and they say, you know, oh, I sent my book off or my demo or, or whatever, and they rejected it and I'm terrible. And I never should have said, even thought that I could do this and I'm going to, you know, go, you know, go do something else now. I'll just read novels and wish that I was writing them rather than actually writing them. Yeah. I think there's something so wonderful about creating, um, that I would, it's sad if somebody would deny themselves that pleasure uh because they're i don't know because they're afraid it'll never get them anywhere i i agree like i i have definitely had times where i'm like wow if i shelve this book because i have you know i have written over 30 books at this point well over 30. um how and several of them like a, a you know maybe a sixth or so have never been published and may never be published or and some of them definitely won't be published and shouldn't be um but it, i can't it is exhausting when i have to decide i'm gonna trunk this novel and some things i've trunked before they even got submitted i've you know i've gotten a little bit of feedback i've thought about it and i'm like you know this one i just i wrote the whole thing and i'm like nah. <laughs> and so sometimes the thought of starting over is um is tiring. It's like sitting back at the base of a mountain and thinking about having to start climbing all over again. <laughs> and that's tiring. But um, so there's something I find energizing about a fresh start mm -hmm. and a clean slate. And uh, I think I use that to kind of, I would hope that, you know, just the idea of like, wow, I could create anything now. I could do this. But I think. One thing about um, if I if I had to give advice, I would say knowing when to put something aside and not being afraid to, even if it's hard, um, is probably one of the tools for success. It's like just telling yourself, I can keep creating. It doesn't have to be this, which is hard because you get really emotionally involved with your characters, sure. your story. Like sometimes it has a deeply personal meaning and it's really hard to let go. And I certainly understand that. But for me, I've definitely found value in knowing when it's time to be like, okay, I'm gonna put this idea aside. And some of my books have cannibalized ideas from like that first book that I wrote, um, ideas from that world appear in some of my other books. I just took them. I was like, well, I'm not going to, I'm not using this book for anything. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just take this idea and I'll put it in this book. I have a, my first published adult urban fantasy series borrows ideas from that first unpublished novel that I have. So it, it was not all for naught. It's recycling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it hadn't been published, so why not? Why not? Yeah, if it fits somewhere else. I mean, maybe the first one was a dress rehearsal for the second, you know? Well, exactly. I mean, it's, not, you know, they're not sacred. They're, I always say there are more words where those came from. You just keep writing. There certainly are. Well, there's always more words. <laughs> always <keep> more. <laughs> so you started out doing fantasy and now you do thrillers. And yes. I don't know if you go back and forth between the two or if you've pretty much switched, but I'm curious to know what, what caused the shift and what you've noticed that's similar that might surprise us and what's different between the two. Sure. Oh boy. That's a lot of questions <laughs> in Sorry. one question. It is. No, it's great. I just <laughs> worried I'm going to like talk for half an hour on that one. That's okay. Um, okay. So let's see why did I make the switch or why did I decide to switch? Was mm -hmm. that like a first piece? I, um, so I started writing fantasy, I think in part because it, that was mostly what I read. 
um, like fantasy, urban fantasy romance stuff. And so I started writing that. Of course, I got my start writing YA and then I moved into adult um, urban fantasy. So that was the first piece was that I, that's what I was exposing myself to for the most part at the time. Um, and it was what interested me. And at the time, I desperately needed just a mental and emotional escape from my world. I just, I, you know, to be frank, I wasn't very happy in my life at that time. Um, and I just needed to, you know, do something with that emotion. And so I started writing, you know, basically these like fantastical worlds and romantic fantasy. And that's, you know, so it was what, where my passion was at the time. I've gone through some life transitions then, since then, and I don't, my needs are different. And um, so I think for a while, I, you know, for now, I just wanted to sort of write in the real world and with real world constraints uh, and to think about it in a more, um, and again, because I write thrillers, it's so there's always a mystery to it. It's kind of like a puzzle box, you know. You're there. You're leaving clues, and your the structure is um, sort of intricate, and that's what I find really fun. So obviously, the differences between those two. I mean, I mean there are obvious, right? The <laughs> there's the in one world, there's you want to solve a problem. There's magic. And, you know, and I've invented all sorts of different magical systems, magic that can be used and dealt as a drug, but, you know, fire and ice magic, uh, you know, I, I wrote that afterlife in an underworld, I wrote a different afterlife for a different series, you know, I just I was completely inventing these whole systems of uh, mythology and magic. Um, and that's different. Uh, but in all my books, the commonality is you know, sort of like the human struggle uh, and particularly recovery from trauma uh, and resilience in the face of um, that level of adversity when you're helpless and something's happened to you. And despite that, you, the characters, you know, move forward and are heroic and, you know, in their own ways and um, deal with you know, the challenge in front of them uh, while, you know, lugging along this history and past. And those, that would, I, is what I would say is probably a commonality that like a thread through my work. Um, I tend to uh, write characters who have been through a lot and have really complicated uh, past experience. Um, sometimes it's the focus of the novel and sometimes it's not. Um, and I think that I just moved the magic uh, sort of from the outside, it being a very concrete, realistic thing to sort of the, an, the interior world, right? It's, it's just the focus is more on human interactions and sort of the strange and scary things that people do uh, here in the real world. Um, but there's still, uh, you know, I think the emotion, you can do that no matter what your genre is. You can, you know, human relationships and emotion are always present. That's what, that's why people read, or a lot of the reason why people read is to get to process that and see something new, but also it feels genuine because it, it's filtered through that emotional experience. Yeah. Yeah. And now it's, it's interesting because I hadn't thought about this until you were talking just now, but since you write thrillers and you're talking about some of the darker, scarier things that, that people do, I'm thinking back to my own experience when I realized that I was going to have to torture a character in my book. Mm -hmm. And I remember having that realization and immediately apologizing in advance. <laughs> I am so sorry. I'm going to have to be really mean to you. And then, you know, as I wrote it and, you know, I mean, I did a, some, some research, I looked into some things and whatever, but, but it reached a point where it just kind of flowed and it was just sort of happening. And I, I don't know if that was the day that I wrote 10 pages in an hour or not, but if, if it wasn't, it felt like it. I mean, it was just like, I felt like I'd run a marathon when I was done, yeah. but, but I also 
was completely freaked out by the experience because I suddenly understood why people do things like that to each other. And I was like, cause you get high on the power trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And I was like, I, I'm not sure I wanted to know that. <laughs> <laughs> I now sure. know what it feels like to be a supervillain. I'm not sure I really wanted to understand that that way. Yeah. And have you had that kind of experience? I mean, since you have the psych background, I don't know if it would be as as surprising to you or not. But yeah, I um, I certainly sympathize with. I I absolutely have the impulse to spare my characters at times when I shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, for that, I sort of look to other, especially when there's tension in a scene, uh, I have the tendency to pull back from it, I think because of my own personal discomfort. Um, and I definitely do enjoy writing. I think what's fun about being a writer is slipping into different skins and, um, definitely some of them feel more comfortable than others. Uh, And what's, I don't think I've ever written, I'm trying to think if I've ever written from the perspective of somebody who's hurting somebody like that. And I don't think, well, actually, oh, but that was for a different reason. I've written some, some pretty, (laughs) uh, some pretty intense scenes between characters uh, where one was uh, doing something for somebody else's good, but it was very painful. Um, and that was sort of an interesting experience where one character is sort of putting another character through something awful and scary or frightening or painful, but doing it so they would be stronger or more resilient on the other side. And that is, um, it was still very hard for me too. So I think I, I sort of struggle with, um, sometimes with doing terrible things to my characters, even though I do, uh, but it's definitely uh, I think for me, I, I struggle with that, some of that tension sometimes. So I think I don't tend to be as exhilarated as fatigued after those, uh, writing those things. I'm just like, now I need a nap. Oh, I was both for sure. (laughs) I think I was, I think it was like, you know, 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, I'm done. Nothing else is happening (laughs) today. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you've written 10 pages in an hour, that's like a day's work right there. could be a couple days that's work, intense right that's intense yeah it I, I probably couldn't replicate that if I wanted to yeah well isn't that that's so true right I mean there are some situations or scenes where it takes a while to get in but then the words just flow and you're just like suddenly your pages into it and you're like whoa how did I get here like I've just written you know a chapter I, I didn't you know realize that I could do it. And some days it's just, you know, each sentence is like an absolute project. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you just don't always have control over what those things are going to be um, for whatever reason. I think that for me, there's a, a loosening of like, maybe once I get into it, it just sort of flows. It's like, for me, it's the entrance point, like finding your entrance into a scene or an interaction that feels, suddenly feels authentic. And then everything just like, you know, sort of flows from there. Whereas if I feel like I'm a little bit too mechanical or like I'm trying to make something happen here and I have to figure out how I'm going to get the character to say something that's really important, but it's more engineered. You can, Mm -hmm. and probably, you know, you can sort of feel the author's hand a little bit more because I actually am in there like (laughs) talk to each other characters. It's like holding two dolls and like bashing their heads together. (laughs) Talk, say words. Um, where it, you know, when it feels more real, then it just like listening to a conversation and taking dictation. It's a very different feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I've worked with people who don't have much writing background and, you know, kind of going intuitively and they have the same experience that I remember having myself where they get completely freaked out and think they have totally lost their minds because, 
they wanted the character to turn right and the character mm-hmm. said nope sorry turning left yeah and and you know I'm like yeah that's normal you're not crazy and they say but I'm the author and I'm in charge and and they did this thing that I didn't want them to do I'm like uh-huh and you know I I'm curious what your take on that is because my theory has been that characters at a certain point become like little sub personalities and they just sit there and say, sorry, not doing that thing, doing this thing over here. You know, it's funny. I, I used to have really strong opinions about that. Um, I used to think I was like, no, I'm the author. I'm in control of this. And so I would hear other authors talk about how, you know, their characters are in control and they sort of, you know, waylay them on the highway and toss them in the trunk and the characters are driving down the road <laughs> and the author's like trapped in the backseat or the trunk. Great like, image. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, no, these are my characters. They came out of my brain. I'm controlling them. But as I have matured as a writer, Um, I definitely feel sometimes like I always, I am a plotter. I generally know what I'm trying to get done, but I do find that just as I was saying that when the words flow is when I just let the characters sort of do what seems more natural to them without trying to engineer the perfect moment or the key plot point. And sometimes that means you're going to end up like deleting a lot of stuff, right? But you just have to let people, the people, by people, I mean characters that I have created, um, you just have to let them interact because, and this is actually, so from a psychological perspective, one thing a supervisor said to me that was really helpful in my training He was like, stop looking. This was, we were, I was doing family therapy and he was like, stop looking at one person or the other person as like for, for causes and, you know, drivers of problems or even the two people separately. He was like, you have to look between them. And sometimes in a session, just look between them, look at what's between them because it's the dynamic that you're working with. It is not one person or the other person. It's these people in interaction together. And there is a dynamic there. And that a lot of times in my clinical work is like, all I think about is not like what a parent did or what a child said, or, you know, cause I work with very small children and their parents. And I don't so much focus on that as this like whirling dynamic of like, that can change moment by moment. And that's, what's interesting. And so when I'm writing, you just have to let that dynamic evolve because that dynamic is not something that you can just engineer or come up with. You can come up with character A and character B. The readers will stay for the interaction, right? That's what, and that's what has to feel really authentic. And you just have to let that evolve. You can't, you can't really engineer that or pull, pluck it out of fully formed out of midair. It just has to happen through the writing of it. And then you figure it out. And then as you figure it out, then you can present it succinctly and <laughs> articulately on the page. But I think there is some, like, you have to kind of figure out how are these characters interacting? I come up with characters all the time. I do not know how they're going to interact until I start writing. That's, that's definitely a true thing for me. So I no longer look at those authors who say, oh, my characters are in charge with like, sort of you know a raised eyebrow like okay I'm like no no I totally get it it makes sense (laughs) but for me it's that interaction that's really interesting and I I like that you're talking about how the how your two sides intermingle because I do want (laughs) to get into that and your comment earlier about how doing outside things can influence your writing I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm curious you know what it's like to balance writing and psychology and you know how they how they interact yeah so it's funny because when I first started being I guess a professional writer you know I'm still working as a psychologist and then I took some years off and am again working as a psychologist so I have these like perspectives um and I think so people would ask me oh how does or does your uh career training or life as a psychologist influence your writing. And I always look at that 
in a couple of ways. Like, first of all, I don't intentionally think, well, I am a psychologist with special <laughs> expertise. And as I write this, like, I don't think like that. I, I, so my first instinct when people would ask that early on would be like, oh, it doesn't, not really, but that's not what people want to hear. They want to hear like, so I think that a lot of writers are sort of amateur psychologists. They, t the books that I love are by writers who don't have any psychology training, but who are incredibly astute regarding human nature, human interaction, extremely observant, um, and able to render those things poignantly, realistically, devastatingly on the page. Um, and so I do not think uh, I have any specific advantage as a psychologist in that realm, because I think that good writers do this naturally. They are extremely keen observers of humans and able to communicate that uh, in a way that's compelling. Um, what I do think is that my training uh, influences what I'm interested in, because there are commonalities. Like, as I said, I tend to write characters who have, like a lot of my characters have had traumatic pasts. And I think that I, um, I tend to prioritize a very realistic depiction uh, over sometimes my the the story. Um, and I have gotten feedback, like from my agent, one book I wrote, she was like, I know this is probably an accurate depiction, <laughs> but it's not like it's coming across in a way that I care that I don't think readers are going to be excited about or want to read because this character seems really foggy and like, and, you know, so there's this balance between an accurate portrayal and then what is in service of the story. It's a, a book is a, you know, ultimately it's like a piece of entertainment for someone else. It's, it's, you know, a, a little gift to someone else to entertain them for a while to, you know, stimulate their mind, to get them, you know, thinking and escape, like re reading does all of those things for us. Right. So I think that um, it, it still needs to have story value. Um, but it's important to me that uh, if I'm writing about mental illness, it not be romanticized. And it's uh, really important to me that if I am writing about mental health professionals, that I never write anything that somebody reading it would be less likely to seek help if they needed mm. it by my depiction. So in my work, you will not see psychologists or mental health professionals misbehaving because you will see them behaving in realistic ways if I write them. So as in when I'm doing psychological thrillers, I am more likely to write them, right? Um, because they exist in the real world and they don't exist in, you know, a, you know, sort of medieval like uh, fantasy setting. Oh, but what if they did? <laughs> they could, I suppose. <laughs> um, but, you know, like, so those things I do. So I do have some red lines that, uh, you know, and, and I have communicated this, like, if I have, like, when I talk to, like, I've had like a film agent interested in um, a book or something, I will say, like, these are the things that are really important to me. Like, you can change my story, you can change, you know, there are certain pieces I'm not too fussed about, but my characters, like, there are certain things that certain characters can't do even if it's for the convenience of the story. I cannot have a mental health condition romanticized. That's not diff that's different than saying it always has to be bad and dire. Like, you know, people are resilient and I like to portray that, but I can't, you know, there are certain tropes that I struggle with and I wouldn't uh, portray because I think that they make it, they, there's not a realistic depiction of what people experience. And I think that's important. So that's my, so as a psychologist, I think I react and, you know, have some priorities that maybe not everybody has. Because those two professions connect. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think, you know, I think that's just a simple matter of conscience. You know, I mean, I, I think it would be the same if, if you were a lawyer, you know, you wouldn't want to have your lawyer character out doing things that they shouldn't be yeah, doing, I think, you know, yeah. And I think if you're in the profession, you're more sensitive to the ethics of the profession. Um, I think for me as a, as a mental health uh, provider, I really don't want to do anything that's going to prevent or reduce the chance that somebody is going to seek help 
if they need it. I want to actually do things that would increase that likelihood. Yeah. Um, because I think that's really important, obviously. So, but yeah, I think, you know, a physician, I, you know, my friend Lydia Kang, who is a physician and an author, I think she thinks a lot about, you know, she wants to have accurate portrayals. And I know she does a lot of research uh, in her books uh, to make sure, and she writes more historical stuff, but she does a lot of research to make sure what she's saying is accurate and takes that really seriously. So yeah, I think you're right. If it's your profession, you you want to depict it accurately. Yeah. You could be kind of protective and rightly so. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of like, you know, the actual time that you spend on both things, is that, has it been a fairly easy thing to balance or has it been kind of yeah. a process getting there? Well, you know, I think because of the way I write, it has been not too difficult. What I will say is I actually think I'm more productive when I'm doing both. Um, just like, you know, it's just the structure and the way I do it. I know some authors, you know, and they say like write every day. For me, I tend to be really tired. I'm kind of intellectually spent after a day, um, you know, doing therapy or supervision or whatever I'm doing that's psychology related. I actually don't tend to write on those days. And the days I write are my days that I've blocked off time. Because for me, I genuinely need a block of time. I really respect writers who write like an hour a day. Um, or, you know, they'll get up really early in the morning and write. Oh, my goodness. That's a, that's really good discipline. But for me, just the way I, I tend to do things, it's really intense. Um, and I just want a block of time. Uh, and then I'll, you know, bang out a couple thousand words and I'll be happy. I'll write a chapter <laughs> or I write, you know, I could write at times I've written, you know, six to 8,000 words a day. Um, so if I have a day or a day and a half that I can do that, that's, that's really good. Of course, there are days I have thousand word days, I have 500 word days. <laughs> so sometimes it's just, you know, you, you don't know how that's going to go, but I tend to just block off time um, and do it in larger chunks instead of, um, you know, sort of small hour long sessions. Well, <laughs> that may change in the future. I don't know, but that's what's worked for me thus far. I am, I am so thrilled to hear you say that because as you said at the beginning of that answer, you know, there's so much out there that says you have to write every day. And I have even seen posts on, you know, places like LinkedIn writers groups say, you know, writers write. And if you're not writing every day, you're not a real writer. I would love to see someone say that to someone like you who has published how many books, but doesn't necessarily write yeah. every day. And I, I feel like it's so unhelpful, you know, yeah. because people write when they can and to shame them because they haven't written for two days because they had a, a stressful time at work or they had to go take care of a, a parent or a child or something. I mean, life happens. Oh, amen to that. I, um, I actually tend to think, and, um, I tend to think that telling anybody that there is only one right way to proceed at anything is sort of silly, <laughs> like, um, because people are so different. Their needs are different. Their lives are different. Their preferences are different. Temperament, personality, situation, all of those things vary so greatly that you just have to find something that works for you. And it's going to look different than, you know, what works for anybody else. Um, sometimes the way I write, I know people would say that's like ridiculous or it's not healthy. Well, it's fine for me. Like it works for me. If it works for me, then I wouldn't necessarily recommend or suggest that somebody else do it exactly the way I do it. Like you don't have my temperament or life or the fact that in graduate school, I developed the ability to type extremely quickly. It was a survival mechanism. And I just, I'm really fast. I type fast um, at the, you know, and so, that just happens to be me. But if you're just a slower, there's, there's, there can be peace in that there's health in that to just like give yourself the space. If you write every few days. Okay. If you write every day. Awesome. Like it, you know, it, I think you can be healthy in lots of different ways and unhealthy in lots of different ways. Um, but it's all about finding what works for you as an individual. Um, and I definitely, I, th I think what 
people are saying when they say you have to write every day is trying, I see this a lot in psychology um, when, and in business and all sorts of things. When people skip to a solution to a problem that's unspoken and they assume inherent in the solution is an assumption about what the problem is. But if you haven't thought through what's the underlying thing that keeps you from writing, let's say, or that keeps you from finishing a book, if the assumption is, um, or if what you're saying is, well, it's just that you're not writing every day. So you're not building up that muscle. You know, that's what people say. You have to, you know, build it up a muscle, build it up as a muscle, and that'll mean you can write every day. Um, but that's, there are some assumptions underlying that proposed solution to the problem. But if you look at, okay, well, why am I struggling to make progress on my book? Uh, the answer may not be, it's just because I'm not writing every day. Like that's one solution. Mm -hmm. um, and and so there could be a lot of things going on. And if you sort of look and say, what's maybe it's an emotional block, or maybe you're not thinking of this as a worthy activity. Um, like maybe there are lots of reasons why people don't take advice or don't do things. Um, and you have to look at those underlying reasons to get to uh, some sort of course of action that is actually going to be sustainably useful. And um, I think when people are giving that advice, you know, you have to write every day, they're trying, they're skipping to the action part. And it's just a broad cover all piece of advice. Um, but underlying that for lots of people could be lots of different things that have to be worked through before they're even able to get to that point of writing every day. And you certainly wouldn't want to make people feel bad for not doing it. If the reason they're not doing it is because they feel like, well, I'm not important enough or worthy enough to make space for myself. Well, then you have to deal with that barrier. You shouldn't feel bad because you're not a writer because you're not writing every day. You should think, okay, if that's what I'm thinking, if that's the thought that's keeping me from writing, then that's the thought I need to address. And then maybe I can write in a way that works for me. Um, so I think people are trying to be helpful, but it may not be as targeted or you know useful for people who are having different barriers to why they might not be getting traction with their writing in that way. So, yeah, and that's that's why the creativity coach in me react badly when I see things like that. <laughs> yeah, because it's your There's, job, right? To yeah. like get There's to those so, things. So many things. I mean, it could be, you know, an offhand comment that your uncle made to you 20 years ago that mm -hmm. made you think that you could never write anything. And it's echoing around in your head, even yeah. if you don't realize it. And until you, you know, figure out how to say, guess what, Uncle Joe, I'm not listening to you. And and, you know, which could involve all sorts of different things, depending, it's not your fault. You know, you've yeah. got that implanted voice in your head that's messing with you. And that's not, yeah. that's not your fault. It doesn't make you a bad person. It just makes you a stuck person. That's right. Exactly. See, you're a bit of a therapist yourself. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what, because that's what you're doing, right? Is you're figuring out what people's barriers are to being able to make progress. Usually there are these cognitive barriers. So in some way you're, and like you said, stuck, you're not giving yourself permission, you're scared of messing up or making a mistake. Um, you're scared. I certainly have to deal with this where I feel like, oh, you know, writing another book, is this futile or is this, you know, in certain, at certain times I have to struggle with these things too, even though, yes, I have my 23rd book comes out in August and then I have a couple of self-published books too. So it's a lot of books, but I'm still, you know, I still have to deal with myself and my own you know, cognitive barriers and emotional barriers to making, you know, sort of keeping uh, things fresh when I, uh, you know, when I write and trying to keep getting better. Yeah. And we all have them. Oh, Whether it my looks goodness. like we yeah. do or not. Yeah. I think social media makes it hard. Everybody looks like they're yeah. having so much fun and they're so productive. <laughs> Yeah, because of course, you're only going to post the moments when you've actually been productive. You're not going to post the moments when you're sitting there staring at a screen going, the, right. I need another word. Something must come after the. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually, because I queue up my social media posts, so I don't have to constantly, like, I, I try to get a little separation from it. And there's, I actually have one coming up where I was sitting here uh struggling with my writing and feeling a little bit sad and my husband came in 
and he opened a box. He's sort of a, a playful type, but he opened a box of puppets that I had gotten from my therapy office. And he, I, I write from a recliner, like I'm sitting in my recliner right now. I, I was sitting here uh, and he sat down on the floor and this puppet appears over the back of my laptop. It's a giraffe. <laughs> And it starts telling me how talented I am. And I just grabbed my phone and like took a picture of this little giraffe face peeking over the top of my laptop. And I said, you know, in the post, I said, you know, I'm, I'm feeling sort of sad about my writing today, but this giraffe appeared to tell me that I am talented. <laughs> and it's just, you know, I think that being, it's hard because social media, there's this pressure to, you know, sort of always put out your best, especially if it's related to your writing. Um, and I, th I think for writers, that can be really hard because we definitely have our down times, our sad times, but that's not what we show, right? Mm -hmm. um, despite what we're experiencing. And that can be hard when you're always seeing everybody having these triumphs, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, you look at somebody like Stephen King, like, I don't know how many books he's written, but it feels like, you know, he turns out one a month or something. Yeah, and 11 billion. Exactly. And it's like, I promise you, Stephen King has those days where he sits there staring at the screen going, what's the word that comes after the? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, that's just, and I think actually that those fallow periods are necessary. That's what I tell myself. I'm like, sometimes I just need to churn. And what I inevitably find is that when I've gone through a time where I'm just like, I have no idea, this might be useful, useless. Maybe this is not going to work at all. Maybe this was a dumb idea. Um, what I inevitably find is that I've, I'm working through something. Cause you know, so as human beings are, Conscious cognitive capacity is brilliant, but quite limited. But our unconscious capacity for processing information is remarkably huge. And so even when we're not thinking about stuff, we're thinking about it and processing it, even if we're not aware of it. And over and over again, this has borne out for me creatively, where I just, I think I'm not doing anything. I think I put my writing aside and I go, you know, watch a documentary or watch a show or read a book or play with my kids or do whatever. And I come back and I'm like, whoa, suddenly the words are flowing. Suddenly I figure that out. Well, I think it's because it wouldn't have happened unless I had that sort of empty period where... Mm -hmm. And I could have sat there and kept flogging myself and trying to finish. But um, I think sometimes you have to let your unconscious do the work. And you do. forgive yourself, forgive yourself for not having, you know, your thousand words for the day because yeah. your brain needed some time to churn. Yeah. I, I mean, taking a break is as much a part of the process as sitting down and actually doing the work. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't, we don't realize that because our society has come to think that human beings are machines and therefore we should be on 24 right. seven and we should have this constant rate of production. Yes. And that's yes. not how human brains work. And, and, you know, what you just said about taking a break actually hits into one of my very favorite coaching tools, which is a small question that you just ask yourself a couple of times and you don't look for an answer. You know, you just say to yourself, you know, what am I missing about this? Or how can I make this more fun? Or, mm -hmm. you know, not like the big, what is the meaning of life though? I suppose you could try it with that and see what happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, you know, a little, a little question, like, what do I need to know to keep going with this project? Or, yeah. you know, what, what's the, what's the secret that's going to unlock this character for me or even, even smaller. I mean, seriously, how can I make this more fun is a great question, Yeah. but you don't look for the answer. You ask yourself a question a couple of times a day for maybe a week and your unconscious brain will yes. be turning yes. on it even that when you're absolutely not 100% true and scientifically accurate. And um, it will pop yeah. something up out of nowhere. Yep. And suddenly it will all make sense to you and you'll know what the next step is. But if yes. you sit down and you're like, I have to figure this out. What's the answer to this? How can I make this more fun? I'm going to make a list of 20 things and I only have five. And right, what's wrong right, with right, me right. that I can only... And I have to do it yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. It's just going to make it so much harder for you. 
No, I agree. Like trying to force things. I think you just have to be gentle with yourself as a writer, with your creative self and um, take care of that little person inside you that's creative uh, and, uh, you know, give that person some space and, you know, nurturance and forgiveness um, because you're not a machine and shouldn't be. Uh, to date, machines cannot create books the way that humans <laughs> do. Uh, this may not age well, but... <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying, um, isn't it? Uh, just a little. But, um, <laughs> but for now, human beings, we're the storytellers and meaning makers. And uh, we have to give our creative selves space to do that. And it doesn't always fit into the time frame we want it to. Um, so some, and which I think is really hard if you, if you just have a certain small amount of time for writing, I think that the, the pressure is even higher because you want to get a certain amount done and, but it's really hard to force it. And, um, I think all, there is a lot of encouragement out there to just take a breath, take your time and let it unfold, not on an artificial timeline, but, you know, on the timeline that's more, uh, you know, organic. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's a real thing that uh, is, takes patience, but uh, you have to sort of listen to that or else the results will not be as good. Yeah. And I love that you've mentioned forgiveness a couple of times. There's a, an essay that I absolutely love that I'm pretty sure is called writing begins with forgiveness. And it's mm -hmm. about this whole idea that, you know, you pressure yourself to write every day. You pressure yourself to write really, really good things. I'll find the link and put it in the show notes for everybody because mm -hmm. I will share it until the cows come home. But, you know, if you get all caught up in that, I have to write every day. I have to write at least 3000 words every day. Right. They have to be, which I have words. done by the way. Yes. I have, I have, I myself have, you know, fallen victim to that mindset. So I completely agree that freeing yourself from those pressures, which is really hard, well, especially if you have something under contract, but, yeah. um, uh, but I think is really the key to having, you know, better writing, better books is just let yourself not write if it's not right. Or write badly. <laughs> yes, exactly. There are always more words where those came from. Yeah. Writing badly is still writing. There might That's still right. be something in there that you can use. That's right. So it doesn't have to yeah. be perfect. Just keep doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes almost... you had to struggle through it. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, there's, it's going to sound crazy, but there's merit to the idea of just saying, you know what? today it's not flowing for me. So I am going to write badly and I'm going to make an exercise of writing badly. I'm going to enjoy writing badly. I'm going to write the oh, worst bad yes, thing absolutely. I can write because if nothing else, it brings the fun back into it. Oh yeah. You know, rather than yeah. I'm terrible and there's something wrong with me. Nope. I'm just going to write totally absurd crap and I'm going to well, have fun with it. And it's still creativity, right? Mm -hmm. It's still, that's still your brain inventing magic. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> which brings me to the question that, that I want to close us out with, which is, you know, you're saying creativity is inventing magic. And I think that's brilliant and perfect, but is there, is there a psychological angle on what creativity really does for us that maybe nothing else does or does in the same oh way? Oh my goodness. You know, I'm sure there is, but I haven't done my, you know, I think there's a whole psychology of creativity that honestly I have never looked at being a psychologist who focuses on parenting and small children. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that obviously there are lots of different ways to be creative and to create. Um, and I think that for human beings, just that idea of leaving the world a little different and contributing something to it is almost like a need that you have assuming your other basic needs are met, and sometimes even if not, um, there's a drive we have to put, to generate um, and to create new things. And I definitely think that um, there's something internal and uh, motivating 
in that for a lot of people, if not all people in some way. The thing is, you just don't know what it's going to look like. It may not be a drawing or a poem or a book or something. It, it may be, you know, just something you else you create with your hands or a new way of interacting or, you know, there are all sorts of different ways to create things. But I think that as human beings, that's definitely something internal to us. That's a sort of innate desire to share that uh, and to experience it. So, I, but I know there's a whole psychology related to it. I should have probably looked that up before. Ah. That's <laughs> fine. Your take is as good as anybody else's as far as there I'm concerned. You go. So, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that there's something, that it's definitely a, a kind of magic that makes us feel more alive. If, even if that's yes. the only thing it does for you, I think that's plenty. Oh, agreed. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so glad it's that we've done fun. this. It's been fun. No, I appreciate it. It's been fun. That's our show for this week. My thanks again to Sarah Fine, whose new book, The Night We Burned, is available on August 10th. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps me reach new listeners. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time.